Ian right here, coming to you from the Orange Line train in Washington, D.C. I'm on my way to the National Mall, and I want to first and foremost thank you guys so much for checking out this episode zero of the Goat Rodeo. Now, I live and work in D.C., and let me tell you, D.C.'s got a bad rep. You know, everybody's so frustrated with Washington, uh, including uh, yours truly. The problem we have is Washington. Washington's crazy. Washington is corrupt. Didn't take long to become part of the problem in Washington. Inconsistent trains, they don't come. When they... That's because the Washington region is the most congested in the U.S. Workers on the train in Washington, D.C. when smoke and then panic fills multiple cars. It's been more than 20 years since one of the four main sports teams here won a championship. After the Capitals lost Game 7 to the Rangers. Knowles, they beat the Nationals 9-7. to Play some damn football. You sucked on the field today. Wizards fans thought they had this one. In the end, they didn't. Fans say it's like we're cursed or something. That the problem with Washington is, is too much penis. And that's why people hate Washington, D.C. It is rough to be affiliated with this town. You're never going to be celebrated from being from Washington, D.C. For some reason, being from D.C. is seen as a mark against you. Like somehow the longer you live here, the less people outside the Beltway start to respect you. You'll never hear Jay-Z and Alicia Keys singing a capital state of mind, and no Frank Sinatra is ever going to be singing a love song about the DMV. Nope. Best we got is Wale. DC chillin', PG chillin', my name Wale, and I came to get it, came to get it, came to get it. Now don't get me wrong, I love me some Wale, but I don't exactly see anybody clamoring to represent DC because of the way Wale's spitting it. The truth is, nobody gives DC any credit. Nobody except for Goat Rodeo. Because the real truth is, this town is amazing. No other city in the world has the types of people that DC does. We have congressmen, professors, world leaders, ambassadors, CEOs, nonprofits, NGOs, the Pentagon. Only in Washington, DC do you get the kind of conversations that you have right here. Conversations that before Goat Rodeo came along used to just stay right here in the Beltway. So what's this show? What's this network about? Well, it's tough to say, but I'll give it a shot. It's about authenticity. In the world of Gawker, BuzzFeed, Twitter, and public shaming, it's easy to think that you can't talk about big ideas without having to walk on eggshells. Well, Go Rodeo doesn't think that's true. In fact, especially here in Washington, D.C., with a preponderance of people that think that they can't be themselves, we're out to prove them wrong. And how do we prove them wrong? By forcing them to be a part of our show. Each week it's going to be a little different. Some weeks it's going to be a one-on-one -on -one interview like the episode you're going to hear today. Other weeks we're going to have a roundtable discussion with people the likes of the NSA, the Pentagon, etc. Sometimes we're going to have politicians, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're going to have CEOs, sometimes we're going to have interns. That's just the way this type of show works. But more than anything for this show, we want to record the kind of conversations that we think the world ought to hear. So with that being said, let's get into it. Extra large? Extra large. So feel free to go back to Silicon Valley. Uh, Goat Rodeo. Goat Rodeo. DC's first podcast network. Why Goat Radio? Um, so it, it was an old, it was like a placeholder for a while. I used to go to a, uh, I went to Virginia Tech, which has like a military school. Which, which tech? Uh, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech, right yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, And there's a military barracks in there. I was in the army there. And uh, the word Goat Rodeo is like a military term and they... Very un-PC, 
cover the microphones is a uh, a cluster f that's fun to watch. But basically, <laughs> it's also a literary term that doesn't say. Cluster I never, in it. I never came across it as a literary term. The it only is. way that I heard it was from drill sergeants and uh, and people screaming at me. But basically, it's something that you know on its face sounds like a terrible idea. Like let's get congressmen to sit down and have a drink with us and talk on a podcast. Um, and then, uh, and then. What do you know? It's what we're doing. Yeah, and then sure enough, there's no way it should work. But look at you. We're here to my Honda from Silicon Valley. That man you just heard me using expletives in front of is a member of the United States Congress. Poor taste, I know. But, in my defense, that member of Congress was Representative Mike Honda of California's 17th District, a district you might better know as Silicon Valley. And when we started this crazy concept of Goat Rodeo, needless to say, we had a lot of slammed doors and unreturned phone calls. Not exactly a lot of people looking to sit down with a couple of nobodies with microphones. Now, maybe it's Congressman Honda's tech roots being from Silicon Valley, or maybe he's just open-minded like that. But Congressman Honda gave us a resounding, let's do it, when we asked his office if he'd like to be one of our first guests on the Goat Rodeo. Now, Congressman Honda may not look like it, but he's a millennial trapped in a silent generation's body. The kind of person that you see in a room full of aging statesmen gravitating towards the staffers and the interns. Which helps being that he's a voice in Washington representing the beating heart of startup culture. In a sentence, he's the kind of guy who's much more ready to ask questions and learn something new than talk about himself. Now, with all that being said, when we sat down with him in between house sessions, we really just wanted to know what was on his mind. You were principal before this, so you came from education then? Yeah. Okay. Education was my background. So was it like an echelon up before congressman, or? Yeah, it was my effort to understand this whole creature called the public education system in this country, because um, uh, growing up in Chicago, I, I remember good things and bad things. Good things that there was a lot of teachers that were nurturing. Mm -hmm. um, bad things, I used to see a teacher pick up a kid and slap him against the uh, the lockers, and, and that frightened me. Yeah. And I said, well, and the teacher was big, and the kid was small, and just went boom on the second tier of the, the uh, lockers and uh, and slapped him. It's just, well, that's, that's not right, you know. So those images uh, stayed with me. And then when I was in the seventh and eighth grade, I had a principal who used to play football with us. Cool. A suit, a tie, overweight, but he could kick that ball like, you know, a ballerina. <laughs> kind of looked like, yeah, an overweight ballerina kicking the football. <laughs> then we had teachers that had weird names like Nut. And one of our seventh grade teachers and he was a coach too they were all they all made impacts on me so <clears throat> so it told me that when I become uh, a principal a vice principal or somebody with kids uh, that that's pretty important to be uh, in touch with the kids and so um, and do things differently that you know make them feel good about being in school and being around adults and being around authority. You didn't mind following instructions, and I don't ever remember them being bossy, <laughs> maybe because I was, no, I wasn't compliant all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted to understand public schools, and as I became an adult, uh, I started to understand that we were not taught everything that we should have been taught. We weren't given time to explore who we are and as a result, you know, by the time I got to college, I had this terrible 
inferiority complex. Everybody was more important. They had better things to say. And uh, when I used to go to speech class, you know, I used to gag so much that you could hear me across the hallway because I was so nervous about going to class. It was an interesting class. I think that's where I start to learn towards the end of the class um, um, period um, that if you talk about yourself, nobody can question it because you're the expert of your own life. Good trick. <coughs> Took a long time to get there. A congressman now, so public speaking is like your MO. I'd say it paid off. <laughs> Only if we pay attention to certain things, you know, right. and I think that uh, one of them is always kind of be prepared and mm -hmm. um, don't do what I did, do what I say. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what I'm saying is everything that I should have done but didn't do, you know, study hard, prepare. I didn't do that until I started to understand that there's a direct correlation between your study and your grades. <laughs> and, you know, interests, you know, it doesn't matter what you're interested in, you should bear down and buckle down and, and get through it uh, because somewhere along the line it's going to come in handy. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, in this job, you know, all that stuff became very, very um, helpful. Even the screw-ups that I've gone through, it's helpful in me thinking through policy because mm -hmm. those are the gaps that we sort of, Create or miss if we don't, if we're not completely thinking about the entire population that we want to, we care about. And education's kids. Do you feel like uh, that's kind of like a problem up in Washington? Like, there's, I don't think there's a lot, like, not a lot of what we got wrong. Or at least, I mean, you can't really. Well, you definitely don't see that. I mean, no, no congressman. No, 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 no. I the problem with today, the problem with public education is there's no public education teachers mm -hmm. or people who remember what it was like. Mm -hmm. uh, they're well-meaning. Um, but then, but there again, uh, public education becomes a political football, yeah. and it's not protected by the Constitution. Yeah. Well, it's uh, scary. I mean, the stakes, you know, for a bad education policy, you don't know the effects until 10, 15 years down the road. Well, you know the effects. You just have to wait for it to happen. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and, uh, you know, things like IDEA. Uh, the um, Individual Disabilities Equity Act uh, by a Senator uh, Jim Jeffers from Vermont. Great bill addressed uh, youngsters um, with disabilities and required us to um, assess a child upon the request of a parent or a teacher. And that's, that's a shell. There's no question. You have to do it. Yeah. And the school district has to pay for it. And the author, uh, Senator Jeffers, said it should be covered at the, at the level 40% of what a child normally gets educated. That's the amount of money extra that you provide. We never hit 20% mm. because there's a wording in there that says, uh, Whatever funds are appropriated, yeah. that was the key phrase. But the law says thou shalt. And so it was a mandate that wasn't fully funded. Yeah. It was a good mandate, um, took care of the kids. And so um, as a result, you got a public school system that 
have parents who are advocating for their kids. Schools who are protecting their budget, not because they hate kids, it's just that yeah. you know, they're supposed to have a balanced budget, so people who are advocates of youngsters are fighting with each other. Yeah. Is that kind of hard, just to contrast of you know, everybody outside of the Beltway kind of, why don't we vote for clean bills and like having to do with a compromise? Like, is there a difference between when you first got to Washington and to where you are now? A bill that sounds so cut and clear, mm-hmm. helping kids who, uh, and then before you're, it gets out of there, you have like a hundred different strings sure. that are fighting for. Well, a compromise is, is fine as long as you don't compromise your principles. Yeah. You compromise on solutions, yeah. but not necessarily your principles. Um, a point of example is the negotiated agreement that uh, Kerry, Moniz, Lou, and President Obama come up with. Mm-hmm. You the, know, Iran the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. You can't change it. You can't even compromise it. You, yeah. you see they're up or down, and do you believe in Non-proliferation, yeah. yeah. Can you compromise on that by you know stretching out or doing some? No. So you know things like Affordable Care Act. Should everybody have health? Yes, good principle. It's a good public policy. How do you get there? Okay, yeah. let's sit down and struggle. But the goal is to get 49 million people. Uh, to be covered by health insurance, and we're the only nation that's democratic that doesn't do that, you know. Right. So, so th- it depends on where, what, public education. They're always compromising on the kids. Yeah. We shouldn't compromise on kids. Yeah. So, what's the principle? It's not equality anymore. We thought it was equality, equal access to education. Yeah, everybody's got equal access if they go to public schools, but all kids do not come to school equally prepared. Mm-hmm. So the, really the focus should be on equity of each and every child upon which you build a system. Yeah. But we built a system we want the kids to fit. Yeah, we make some changes according to some gross needs and differences, yeah. but then we expect them to you know, come up. It's it's not equitable and it's not fair. It's not equal protection. It's a civil rights issue for each and every child. When parents get that, they'll turn this whole system over on yeah. its head. Because we got Constitution says it's the purview of the states. Because yeah. you know, judges said that you know children are not protected by the Constitution. The states do. Okay, we changed the Constitution a lot of times. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think the big pushback is just kind of that? I think with a lot of parents feel it's kind of the not in my backyard. It's it's like public education is great. We do these all these wonderful big things, but my school district is different. And I don't want my kid to do that. Sure. Or charter schools are great, but maybe not for my not in my school district. Is that kind of? I mean, I, at least on the outside looking. Yeah, in. that that's symptomatic because yeah. people think that's the choices that they have. Mm -hmm. No one ever said, let's step back and change the paradigm. What if we said, we will fund each and every child according to their needs? What parents going to say no? And it doesn't matter. Always surprised how things get spun. (laughs) But it, well, to fund each and every child based upon their needs, based upon good solid assessment 
is non-negotiable. I mean, right. there's no compromise. There's no, there's no um, room to say, yeah, but, yeah. because what else do you need if you can do that? Once you do that, though, then the problem is, do we have the staff to take care of each and every child's needs? No, we don't. Why? Because we set everything up based upon the old system. So what do you do? You take the needs that are exhibited or demonstrated by the assessment, that becomes your curriculum for teacher preparation. Right. Right? Because where's the curricula coming from right now? Researchers are saying, you know, uh, who are confined to the old parameters, trying to figure out, you know. It's like saying, um, how do we you know, get navigate to the moon and the world is flat? Your whole math is different. Yeah. And see, so you just got to step further back and understand um, the history of this country, uh, their intention, and the outcomes. The outcome is 50 states, 50 systems, and within each state there's a whole bunch of systems. That's not what you call a national program. Now I'm just outside of Lincoln Park, right near Capitol Hill and Eastern Market. And it is eerily quiet because the Pope is here, so nobody's on the road. Anyway, instead of plugging a sponsor this week, I wanted to plug one of our other shows on Goat Rodeo. It's called Revivalism, and it's about street music and our journey 9,000 miles across the country and back. I could go on and on about how we were in Asheville, North Carolina, how we rode trains, how we were in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, we were in Austin, San Francisco, the like. But said, I'm just going to give you 15 seconds real quick to make it easy. And this song goes out to you. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Everybody in Harlem knows Satan. <laughs> Drags me out of the car, hog ties me. Sounds pretty cool, right? The show features music recorded live by Goat Rodeo and features some of the most interesting people that I've ever met. I can't recommend this show enough. I'm super proud of it, and we really hope that you guys will check it out, too. I'm going off to go see the Pope. You guys enjoy the rest of the interview with Congressman Mike Honda. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm in the National Gallery. And I'm looking right at Rembrandt's Descent from the Cross. And I can do that because all the museums here are free. Now, over the course of conversation with Congressman Honda, his granddaughter came up. LGBT issues are something that the congressman takes pretty seriously, but it hit home for Congressman Mike Honda and his family when he found out that his young granddaughter is transgender. Sure. Uh, I, I can tell a story because, one, I have her permission. Right. And that's, that was critical. Uh, two, uh, she has a story to tell, and I'm prepared to tell that. Three, my daughter... And my son-in-law have created a family situation where um, Melissa, my granddaughter, can grow up very healthy with her siblings. Mm-hmm. And um, is that four? <laughs> Anyways, the next yeah. is that they understand how to extend that environment into the school and prepare the school. And all this time when uh, my daughter um, 
understood what my granddaughter was saying, um, things started to move in, in the in the appropriate direction. When my uh, granddaughter Melissa was uh, eighteen months, she said, <laughs> "I'm a girl," you know, eighteen months. Some people say, "Well, that's kind of young for anybody to make that decision." Right. It was not a decision; it was a declaration. Right. She didn't decide. Say, mm-hmm. "I'm still a girl," you know. Right. You can't see that on podcasts. But <laughs> 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 looking at her testicles and said, oh, "I'm a girl," you know, it's a declaration that she did, and she, um, and my daughter just watched and waited and created space for her. When she was three, she said, I'm a girl, my name is Melissa, and this is how you spell it. So my daughter understood that insistence, persistence, and consistency were the three things that continued to exhibit itself. And when you make room for that, she starts to develop normally and naturally and happily. Uh, Before she used to, you know, she used to have fits and stuff like that, but uh, after seven years, after being seven years old, um, we just said, my daughter just said to the clan, to our families, um, um, this is Melissa, and um, we're going down this journey with her, you know, so right. to speak, so it's was okay, that, you know. Was it tough at all, not, not that it, about accepting a granddaughter, but more that the tough thing for me would be there's no handbook on someone in your family as transgender or any of that. Was it? Was there like a bit of a learning curve of just what exactly the right and wrong things? Like, sure. Was there a bit of a, a learning curve there? Yeah, there was a learning curve. I, I think the first thing to learn is pronouns. Right. <laughs> okay. And then yeah. the next thing to learn is not to say, um, to say that um, Melissa was assigned a gender at birth right. rather than saying she, she, she was born a boy. Right. You know. So those are critical things to understand, not to negate her person. Right. And, but to say it's, it's a, a new chapter in our, our, our book of life, uh, it's not really true. It's that people were existing already. We just didn't allow them to write their story. Right. And so while the LGBT, uh, what we call it LGBTQQIA, uh, that alphabet, uh, they've been unfolding for decades, in fact, centuries. We talked about, you know, the great artists and the great playwrights and the great uh, actors and people who are flamboyant. Mm-hmm. They were gay. Yeah. Right? And it was accepted, but it was accepted at a certain level of society. and yeah. uh, didn't permeate throughout society or through our religion either. So they were either exceptional or they're outside the, the realm of norms. Um, and, and today we, we have to understand that they were always here, yeah. just not allowed to exist in the Western society. Sure, there's a lot of indigenous groups that had figured out a way how to deal with it, but right. um, we're just learning to do that, and I think that that's healthy for our for our our for our society. Mm-hmm. And just pay attention and to start to understand um, 
this whole concept of the closet. Um, yeah. I sort of been thinking about that, and if Melissa said at 18 months, I'm a girl, my daughter says, oh, no, honey, you're not. And, you know, it's it's a loving resistance. Right. And so all of a sudden there's that negation of that declaration, and then there's some doubt about one's person. Right. And then everything else after that says, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Yeah. Or it's a phase, it's a phase, it's a phase, and all of a sudden you start to doubt who you are. As you get older, you get stronger in your convictions, but everything else says... And so that closet becomes deeper, darker, and heavier. Right. And to open and get out of that closet becomes a major, some people don't. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's definitely like a lot of, you know, whether or not, I don't even think that a lot of parents do it as a necessity that they just don't want them to be that way, but I think there's a lot of resistance. Some of the resistance probably comes from just not knowing how to handle, I mean, it's much easier for somebody if you just said, no, you're, you're a boy. And, and not to have a handbook to... to you're a boy or you're a girl, and, 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 you know. And you definitely think, I mean, you go 13, 14 years, and you feel one way, and everyone around you is telling you the other opposite. I think a lot of it probably just comes from eventual misdiagnosis because you have people that are depressed because, it, I mean, there just isn't the language there. Yeah, I see, I don't know because I never searched the literature, but right. there probably is stuff there uh, that we try and explain away. Right. I, I call it loving resistance, but then there's also the issue of not conforming to what right. the adults think is normal. Right. And so um, we go from um, looking at gender as as if it were a binary system of ones and zeros. Right. But if you spread them out, then you have this spectrum. Yeah. And so in the spectrum somebody falls within those spectrum, then how do you ID yourself? How do you claim that this is where you are? Mm-hmm. I think that's our next step and how do we do that? How do we go about you, self-identifying without saying you gotta be one or the other? Right. Do you kind of feel that you're, I mean, it, it's kind of been thrust upon you to be, because you're a public figure, that in Congress you kind of represent the, those uh, gender sex minorities or LGBTQQIA? Um, I guess, I, I, guess I, don't, I never is, thought has, about that. Yeah, no. has, has there been any like pushback or reception from Congress? Other sure. Than... No, not from Congress. Uh, well, not to my face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like racism, sexism, you know. They don't call me a Jap to my face, but maybe to my back, you know, they, yeah. they say that. <laughs> but I, I think today uh, that, that's old stuff. I think mm-hmm. um, um, I know that the editor of uh, our, our local newspaper uh, has second thoughts about these kinds of things, thinking that uh, my granddaughter is too early, too young to make a decision like that. Right. Well, excuse me, she had almost seven years of thinking about it. Right. Is, was there any hesitation of being kind of public about that just because your daughter, your granddaughter is so young? I, never, I really never thought about it that way. Right. I, you know, it presented itself as. First, it was to give a video to uh, the L.A. School District, right. to their leadership, talking about the co- courageous conversation about bullying. Mm-hmm. And I put in there, um, if you're going to lead this courageous conversation, you got to deal with some of your own issues. 
right. around bullying, around sexism, around gay lesbian issues, around you know those kinds of things. Once you do that, then you have the authority to um, lead that courageous conversation. But if you try to lead a courageous conversation, you have issues. You <laughs> you'll stumble. And so that was my video message, and then from there uh, we put out a yeah a tweet uh, that we did yes, with my granddaughter. Kind of yeah. yeah, and um, you know it that started the yeah it, it did, and then just about that time you know this whole issue of Jenner came out, right. which I think she did a great job of. Going through a series of interviews to explain. Kind of I know that we were talking with your office beforehand about you know talking about some of this stuff, and then Caitlyn Jenner, and then it could not be more in the uh, in the zeitgeist, so to speak. Yeah, you know, you had the the, the child, and you have the adult, and you have the whole route that uh, Caitlyn went through. And when they said Caitlyn Jenner, I said, "Who's she?" Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, and you know, when they explained to us. Oh, really? And so I went through some adjustments. It's, oh, my God, you know, what a journey that uh, Caitlin must have taken. And mm -hmm. when she went on the air, you could see the different steps that she had to go through. And, uh, and then she's also opening up new avenues like, I, you know, I am who I am. My sexuality is, could be different, though. I still like women, right. he says, or she says. So um, you withhold judgment right. and uh, let it unfold, and they will be good teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, one thing that I was going to say, and I love that you have your daughter Ruth right now, just permission to be able to tell her story, because that's something that was really important to you yeah. and I. Like, we don't want to be exploitative at all, but we think that this is really important to be telling and to be talking about. Um, do you think that she is going to kind of follow in your footsteps as maybe like starting to advocate for this as she gets older and older? Do you see any of that spark in her eye? No, all I see is a young girl um, developing and enjoying life. And uh, actually, you know, like during Labor Day weekend, you know, she led the whole family in a, in a dance in front of the TV set, you know. Get in on it. <laughs> I, I, maybe 30 <laughs> seconds, I was out of breath. But I kept looking. I said, why is she looking at the TV? Says, so she can see herself. You know, because the TV wasn't on. My daughter was explaining what she was doing. I said, oh, okay. And she choreographed all her moves. And she did it for her brother's birthday. I said, oh. And just to see how creative she is and how... Together, she is, you know, has, you know, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so, um, the question is, is she going to be a politician? I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I didn't think I'd be here. You asked me, you know, two years or a year before that I ran for Congress, um, I said, what are you smoking? Yeah. <laughs> so, what was, the, what was the thought process to to coming to Washington? I mean, I know that you've been in public policy before. And well, a couple of folks were pretty instrumental. Um, 
Zolofkin was one, she asked me, can I talk to your wife? You know, uh, I know this is important. And I said, yeah, I talk to her, you know. She's the one that usually uh, is the final say. Yeah. Um, always try to get permission first, you know. <laughs> and as she just said, you know, if you want to do something in education, because I want to stay at the capital, state capital, and um, to work on education, because I thought it was something that needed to be done. It wasn't until I got here that I got, I started to truly understand the full scope of public education, mm -hmm. where the fault line lies. And the fault line is along our marriage to the concept of equality, where equality is fine, but if you don't deal with equity first, the children cannot even achieve equality. And I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's how we have to reshape our schools. And getting back to schools and kids, if we say we're here because of the kids, now let's make sure that we design a system around them, right. not for them. Because we started public schools to get the kids out of manufacturing, you know, not compete with adults for jobs. And then you know, we wanted to keep them in for so long so they'll be prepared for the world of work. So we said, thou shalt go to school for 10 years, compulsory education. And by the time you graduate, from the eighth grade or sixth grade, you will graduate with a sixth grade literacy, right. prepared for the manufacturing world, you see. Not preparing for their own life to make their own decisions. And so if we don't do that right for the kids, then we condemn them to 10 years of uh, sentencing. It's like a determinate sentence. That's so why much. kids leave school. They're escaping. So we have to get get past that whole control thing and start to understand if we're there for the kids, then let's make sure we set the system up. So you're back in Congress now. What do you do for fun when you're up here in Washington, if there's any? Talk to fools who got podcasts. Yeah. You know, that's definitely going in. Things that are different, um, things that get the message out, you know. Friends like Jocelyn, who constantly keeps an eye on you, and say, "Oh, this is good. And get him and put him to you know, you know, the matchmakers, uh, things like this. Right. Getting a word out because it's pretty hard to get your voice heard. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. A lot of noise in this town. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I still kind of, kind of a person that's sort of low maintenance, low voice. No crazy karaoke parties on the weekend. Uh, you know, they're, they're fun, but I do that just to force myself to be in front of people and do something I normally don't do. So it makes speaking yeah. in front of people easier because I perspire when I give a speech. Hey, well, we love oh, karaoke. We've got pig all the time out in Dannendale. If you want to come out, Congressman. I didn't know they had karaoke. Oh, next door right to next door. Next oh, door to you see. Been? Okay, oh, we'll see you there. I've never been inside, but I've been to Honeybee. I love Honeybee. It's a hard so place cool. to find, but once you find it, it's yeah. you know, good parking once you find it. Yeah. <laughs>
So, so uh, I'll go out with you if you call. Oh, absolutely. Give us a okay. number. We promise we'll, we'll use it only for, uh, for emergency hunting tags. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be an emergency. We can plan it. You know? Oh, trust me. The emergency for hunting tag threshold is low. <laughs> Very low. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll try to meet that. Yeah. I'll buy the first drink. Is that okay to say? And there you have it. A real conversation with a real member of Congress talking like a real human being. Who would have thunk it? We want to thank Congressman Honda in a big way for coming on our show. It's not easy being the first guest on a brand new show, and we think he did a wonderful job opening up to some parts of his life that are very private. And while we're getting the thanks out of the way, we want to thank you guys in a big way too. When the GOAT Radio was still just a gleam in our eye, we had no idea that it was going to expand to the level of scope and scale that we're at today, and that absolutely would not be here if not for the support of you guys listening in. So please, please, please keep it up. Share, talk about this show, spread it out any way that you can, subscribe to us on iTunes, give a review, all that jazz. But we just want to say we're so excited to bring you what we have in store. Time for the credits. Today's show is produced by Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. with the help of 21st Century Group. To learn more about Goat Rodeo, you can go to www.goatrodeodc.com. And to learn more about 21st Century Group, you can go to www.tfcgrp.com. Now, if you'll excuse me, Goat Rodeo is off to get some honey pig Korean barbecue and sing some karaoke. We're Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.